I'm James Day, and this is Focus on Pocus, a podcast about current topics in point-of-care ultrasound. We've had so many varied guests in the field over the past two or three years. And if you feel so inclined, click over to pocus.org where all the shows are archived. And also, please reach out to us if you have an interesting story to tell us that revolves about all things ultrasound. And uh, happy solstice, everybody. Here we go again. Summertime is here. And to start off the great summer season, today's guest, we have Dr. Larry Israel, who's a writer, entrepreneur, hospitalist physician. He's been covered by NPR and Washington Post for various medical startups. He is also a creator of PocusMedEd.com and is certified in point-of-care ultrasound by the Society of Hospital Medicine and the American College of Chest Physicians. Larry, great to have you. Thank you so much, James, to be here. I'm very excited. Okay. And so I noticed I've read a couple of your blogs, which are great, and I just wanted to particularly shine a light on this excerpt from 1968 Star Trek, <laughs> which turned out to be a great television prophecy. Yes. Dr. McCoy urgently takes out his medical tricorder, a device that can check organ function and detect disease with a wave of the detachable probe. He hovers it just above Captain Kirk's chest, and within seconds, he notes severe heart damage, signs of congestion in both lungs, and evidence of massive circulatory collapse. Wow. We're looking at ultrasound in 1968 from Dr. McCoy. That was really cool. That was a great blog I read you did. Really entertaining. Uh, you're quite the writer. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, I was I was uh, trying to figure out how to end the book, and I just was Googling various things, uh, and I, I knew about the, the tricorder, and I was just hoping to find a, a YouTube video, and I came across that one, and I felt it was perfect. Basically, they you know, predicted what POCUS was, you know, uh, 60 years ago. So it was really, really cool. I think it's a good metaphor and kind of example of, of how far we've come where where science fiction of the 1960s <laughs> is really the science nonfiction of today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that show, you know, uh, a diversified crew, all this technology, intelligence. I mean, I hope we keep moving in that direction. So today, what we really want to talk about is this great book that you wrote, The Pocus Manifesto. And I just, you know, the first thing I thought of to ask you was, did you escape to some secluded cabin in hopes of writing the great American novel? Or did you just decide, nah, Pocus is what we need now? <laughs> well, no, I just, I just had come across so many instances at work where people just didn't know what Pocus was or had no clue how how effective it was or what you could do with it. And I just found myself kind of almost speaking a different language to the other physicians and, and clinical staff. You know, I would say something like, oh, I just looked at their lungs and there's no pulmonary edema. And they would say, oh, but I listened to their lungs and I heard crackles. And I was like, so I just felt like there was needed a need for some sort of why, why focus is important. What is the evidence behind it? And, and so, so kind of like a primer for people who haven't done it before to understand why it's so important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The whole physical exam or complementary with ultrasound. But uh, yeah, there's a disconnect. I think it's generationally. It's changing a bit. Um, so what should other doctors who are skeptical about POCUS know? Well, I think for any sort of new technique or imaging study, I mean, 
we first should understand the you know the the power that it beholds to us as well as the limitations you know for for cardiopulmonary examination i think for there's so many instances where just basic lung ultrasound on the bedside or or heart ultrasound can get you the the answer with you know ct scan level of accuracy you know for pulmonary edema pleural effusion pneumonia the many studies have been done around the world and that corroborate the same findings that Dr. Lichtenstein found in uh-huh. the 90s through the early 2000s is that it's about as sensitive and specific as a CAT scan. That is, there are definitely exceptions to that, uh-huh. um, but for very for the majority of diseases we see in a hospital setting, heart failure, you know, um, pulmonary edema, like I mentioned, the lung ultrasound and heart ultrasound, you can get the diagnosis usually within one to two uh-huh. minutes and be nearly 100% accurate. So that's something that we absolutely cannot do with a stethoscope, no matter how good you are with it. There's just some inherent limitations, you know, in a in a device, uh, in, in an auditory device as compared to a visual device. I mean, you know, it's like if there's a barrel of mm-hmm. of fish, you can you can tap on the barrel and try to figure out how many fish are inside, or you can open the top and look inside. So the, that's kind of how I view POCUS. It's you're just literally looking at the organ that you previously were trying to infer what's going on with. Yeah, I, I, I were I guess you know ever since we you know came down from the trees, I think we're more visual learners. Some people are more audio, but I overall, I, I really think that it's it's the visual for the you know human. Yeah, I mean if you if you if you listen to a basketball game on the radio and then watch the same game in person i mean i don't think there are many people that would say the radio provided more information or better experience you know it's just you just if you can see what's going on it's just overall better yeah so you know i just think uh people need to just first understand what focus is because i think there's a lot of misunderstandings that end up resulting in criticisms of what it is and is not and then just to see uh, how powerful it can be. Yeah, you know, that analogy you just used, radio, TV, uh, live. It's, so the radio, you use your imagination more. And maybe the tendency is, you know, with audio to fill in the, you know, spatial holes. Exactly. So listen, as a cardiac sonographer, I'm really interested to hear more about your, your right atrial pressure studies. Yeah, so you know, as I as I was learning POCUS and doing POCUS, mm-hmm. uh, I I predominantly work on the cardiac unit, step down unit at the hospital. And as as any clinician who's worked in a hospital would would appreciate, you know, when when we're coming to trying to determine a patient's volume status, in other words, are they fluid overload? Are they dehydrated? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've all classically learned this method in medical school. Uh, looking at the internal jugular vein, the neck vein, and trying to determine if it's distended or filled with fluid or not. Right. And it's a very clever technique that was developed by a cardiologist in the 1930s, and it, and it is still, you know, somewhat effective for sure. But with the advent of POCUS and the ability to see the vein, the veins through the neck, I just thought there was a much more accurate and precise way with POCUS, and so. I just basically started 
focusing people's jugular veins and just looking at them and putting their bed at different angles and seeing what happens to it. And that got me started on this technique uh, to measure, see if I could actually measure the pressure in the right atrium, uh, just looking at the jugular vein with ultrasound. And eventually I, it came, I, I figured out that um, with, with just a quick ultrasound of the jugular vein plus a parasternal long axis mm-hmm. view of the heart, and for those who are not familiar, basically like the most basic image of the heart on ultrasound, you can really calculate the actual pressure within three millimeters of mercury or so. Wow. Um, and because the basic idea, and this is the same exact idea that's the basis for the jugular venous pressure exam that we all learn is, you know, it's essentially a column of blood. The base of the column is the right atrium and the, and the walls of the column are the jugular vein. That's a simplified version, but that's how a good way to think about it. And as, as the, if you get more fluid overload or your veins get more and more distended, the fluid in the right atrium builds up and that goes into the jugular vein. So the jugular vein, when it gets distended and uh, the pulsations that you normally see are no longer there and to the, the fluid column builds up. So when it builds up and up and up, it goes from the right atrium all the way up and you can see it in the neck vein. Um, but the, the limitation to that is the depth of your heart is very different in different people. You know, you take a 400-pound man, mm-hmm. the depth of their heart could be anywhere from 10 centimeters to 15 centimeters, whereas you take a very tiny, older, elderly woman, you know, it could be about 5 centimeters. So if you're just looking at the neck vein, there are a lot of limitations to that. So in, in this method that I developed, it, it takes into account the depth of the heart as well as whether or not the vein is distended at the neck and so i i teamed up with a cardiologist who does uh right heart cats all day and we corroborated the findings and and the study is on on uh, the preprint server now this is the second study we did um and i'm waiting uh hopefully publication at a journal and but what we showed was that you can get within three millimeters of mercury pretty much every time um which is really useful at the bedside to determine the right-sided pressures, how much fluid does, does the patient have, especially in a patient with who's obese with a very thick neck or various other reasons why you may not be able to see the vein with your eyeballs only. Yeah, so that old um, sort of physical exam of the jugular venous distension, you, you put me into my, I was thinking about sort of, I think there's a new, you know, there was always the IVC and Pulsin in the hepatic, mm-hmm. but uh, the IVC 50% collapse, you know, you got to eyeball that, but I think there's, a, I'm not sure, but, and I can't speak correctly on it. There's some new way to do the IVC that's much more quantitative. I, do you, Yeah. I, I forgot what it's called. Oh. Now. Uh, they Are you something. talking about the Vexus? Yes. Yes. The Vexus. That's yes. it. Yes. So Vexus is a venous excess ultrasound exam. It's, it's a very clever technique that's popular more in the intensive care population because it, it, it uh, requires a little more advanced ultrasound techniques. You have to be able to interpret Doppler. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they look at the IVC, the, nice. how large it is, if it's collapsing. And then they look at the hepatic vein and the portal vein waveforms. And so, yes, this, I think this 
my method provides very, very similar um, information to the VEXIS scan. Oh, great. If you compare mine to, to just IVC, I mean, as of what we found in, in, the, in that second study, it's, it's better. Uh, it's just more, uh, more accurate when you compare it to right atrial pressure than, than just using IVC. One, IVC is just gives you categories of pressures. And like you said, you're just kind of estimating and eyeballing it. Hmm. Yeah, so I think this is a method that anybody can do. You don't need Doppler. Uh, you can. It takes un, under one minute. It, all you need to know is how to get a parasternal long axis view. That's really the only limitation in terms of skill set. Oh, and then you see the right ventricle. Well, that's the right ventricle. That's how do you? Yeah. Wow. So on parasternal long, you yeah. you can't see the right atrium, but no. but. Uh, but if you look at uh, what I found is that the po posterior wall of the LVOT, the left ventricular output tract, mm -hmm. sits in the same same plane as the right atrium. So all you have to do is measure down from the chest, or you probably sit down to the posterior LVOT, oh. and that that's that's essentially the center of the right atrium. So so that's the what I call the right atrial depth, and then you add that to whatever you would see above the chest if the vein was distended. Oh, that's neat. That, uh, yeah. I hope that get, gets some traction and we see more of that because that, that will make it a lot easier than Vexus. Definitely. You don't have to fool with the Doppler and yeah. you can get that. I used to, with my medical director, we used to have these eh, friendly yet robust discussions of, uh, uh, you know, James, you cannot do a sonic Murphy with a transducer. You must reach over from the back, pull up from the rib cage, and all these really cool, however old, uh, medical history. And I noticed that in your book, you talk a lot about the progression from the stethoscope. And so why did you include so much medical history in the book, which, you know, I really like that. Yeah. So, like, a few years ago, I published, right during COVID, uh, uh, an op-ed about how focus was emerging in, in the COVID pandemic as much more useful than a stethoscope. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of, at our hospital, nobody was using a stethoscope initially because we didn't know what was going on and we didn't want to be exposing so many people so close to the patient. Whereas with POCUS, you were getting so much more information that it was uh, deemed, you know, worthwhile to do. But so, and I got a lot of negative comments on that article. <laughs> uh, all kind of summarized by the fact that I don't think people understood what POCUS was. And so as I was looking into writing this book, it just was clear to me that these people, if they understood the progression of, of medical, uh, our medical physical exam and how POCUS would fit into that, I think they would be much more open to, to understanding and, and adopting it. And, and so if, if you go back you know, to from Hippocrates up to Lenek, when yeah. Rene Lenek figured out, discovered the stethoscope or, or invented the stethoscope, I should say, you know, he all he was trying to do was just collect objective data about his patients. Uh, you know, they, they couldn't look inside the chest. They didn't have chest x-rays. They didn't have anything like that. He could put his ear up against the chest. That's from the Hippocrates. But he thought with a tube, he could get much more accurate and objective data and so focus is literally just the progression of that you know it's it's mm -hmm. getting objective real-time accurate data from the chest there's there's nothing more more to it really 
So I think if you look at it in that context of just a progression of of medicine, you know, a, a good quote about that was um, the, the the biographer of Lenek, his name was Dr. Forbes. He translated the next book into English and wrote a lot about Lenek. And he, he had a quote that said, um, Lenek achieved the wish of the ancient philosophers to place a window into the breast through which we can see the precise state of things within. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was such a interesting quote to apply now. I mean, the other thing is, Lenek yes. called it a stethoscope. He called it a stethoscope, which scope is actually to see. So, you know, this is completely conjecture here, but maybe he was kind of thinking, forward thinking and saying, I want us to be able to see inside the chest. You know, even though this is a kind of auditory way, maybe there will be a way you can actually look inside the chest. Yeah, maybe we need to amend this acronym we're messing with this POCUS and call it POSCOPUS. Maybe. <laughs> exactly, uh, yeah. The sonoscope, <laughs> yeah. The sonoscope is one. Yeah. Also, what was really interesting was that um, Ren- uh, Lenek was very, very similar to Lichtenstein. So Lenek invented mm-hmm. the stethoscope, and then 150 or so years later, Daniel Lichtenstein, an ICU doctor in France, yes. really pioneered this using ultrasound at the bedside. And so it was just super interesting. They both trained, uh, spent the same time, some time at the same hospital, Necker Hospital. They're both from France. Um, and they both were just trying to create a, a more objective, accurate method of, of doing a physical exam. Yeah, and Dr. Uh, Lichtenstein has been on this, the focus on POCUS. Oh, has he really? Yes, uh, I, and I have talked to him. He's brilliant, and I've seen him in action at conferences, and one of the things I thought was interesting that he shared with us that some of this uh, he got from veterinary medicine, you know, um, just looking at mm-hmm. uh, stuff, and, you know, and, of course, his own, you know, brilliance and everything else that he applied to it. Yeah, he's it's funny how they were both from France and both looking for a new way to see in a patient. That's, that's so neat. Yeah. So turning away from your writing, which you're, you know, you these are awesome books, Pocus Manifesto. So are you on a writer's tour or anything? You're going to be working at the, I don't know, the regional coffee shops and used bookstores and stuff <laughs> like that, Barnes and Nobles. I wish I had the time for that, but no, <laughs> this is strictly an online endeavor and uh, try to promote it on our Twitter and, other places but um, so listeners could probably go to amazon or yes, something it's being sold on, on amazon mm-hmm. you just look up the pocus manifesto or you could just go to the pocus manifesto.com and, and look at um the website and some quotes about it very cool so i know you've been involved in medical upstarts can you tell us about maybe a couple you had a hand in sure yeah so uh the most recent one i did was uh, starting in residency through my first couple of years as an attending, I had a patient um, who had a pheochromocytoma, which is a, mm-hmm. a tumor on the adrenal gland that secretes an abnormal amount of adrenaline. And it causes all sorts of horrible medical uh, issues. But we had this patient, and when we saw them, they described it as, you know, if they had way too many cups of coffee, how they were feeling, they were very jittery. And that kind of got me thinking that would be kind of a interesting name for a coffee company. And I didn't think much of it at the time. Just, it was just a thought. And then I got thinking back to 
in medical school, I had a great mentor who taught me about how he roasts his own coffee beans at home. And mm-hmm. I was just thinking, and, and so eventually it, this morphed into a coffee company that I started. <laughs> it was a cool. medical themed coffee company. So every bag, uh, would honor a medical pioneer or a, um, a medical discovery. And uh, I also teamed up with this nonprofit called Watsi, and uh, I wanted to make it so that every bag of coffee you'd buy, a portion of your your purchase would go to fund directly fund a surgery. Mm. So there's this um, there you know in in various other countries, uh, Watsi works with them. It's basically like a Kickstarter for healthcare where people can donate and fund various surgeries. And so you'd get your coffee bag, you'd get a picture of the person you helped and you learn about some medical history. And so it was really fun. And I did that for about three years, Um, got into the Washington Post, a lot of other media coverage, probably because it was a little weird for a doctor to be doing a coffee business. (laughs) I don't think it's weird at all. It was it was really fun and uh, it was growing for a while and then kind of te- tapered off. And then when COVID hit, there was just no way I was able to maintain doing everything. I was basically doing it all by myself with the hopes of hiring someone eventually. But yeah, life just kind of got in the way and, and it, it just um, but it's the website still up more as an online museum. People can see it. It's feocoffee.com. It's P-H-E-O. P-H-E-O coffee.com that's right all right so maybe some listeners would take a look at that mm-hmm. just you know i really think it's neat that you included a lot of medical history i'm fascinated by you know i was at thomas jefferson and they have a whole about the panama canal and yellow fever and the civil war and also the mutter museum is in you know downtown oh, philadelphia yeah. with a lot of medical oddities and historic mm-hmm. stuff so I really enjoy that aspect of your book. Well, thank you. Um, and then another thing I'm impressed with is this rigorous uh, certification process in POCUS that the Society of Hospitalists in Medicine put together. Can you tell us about some of that? Yeah, it's really a great program. It's just uh, difficult to complete for anyone who has a, a job, but yeah. um, it it requires... Uh, multiple in-person conferences from approved conferences. It requires submitting multiple images to be reviewed and approved um, of heart, lung, DVT, kidney, various other ones. It requires uh, uh, in-person final exam where you're scanning patients with with and being graded on it, and then a, an online exam as well. So it's really an in-depth longitudinal program that really, I think, gets people ready to at least be comfortable with scanning the basics. Mm-hmm. And so I I was really into POCUS as a resident, and I wanted to become good at it, and this seemed like the best way. And I also wanted to be able to scan at the hospital, which is for, for all the hospitals in the U.S., I think it's it's coming. It's just they need to navigate, you know, who can anybody scan without any training? How do you become certified? Yeah. How do you, so every hospital is dealing with that now, but this independent body was just, you know, very well-respected societies was offering this program. And so I think it's a great thing that everybody should do if they can. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. It's very rigorous. I, I remember uh, David Tierney was involved with that. I know he 
you can go to his lab and you know get checked out. It's going to be a combination of didactic, hands-on, so many exams. It's almost like learning an instrument, you know. And right. are you going to be beginner, intermediate, or expert? You know, surely it's a journey over time. But you can surely grab onto it quickly for the POCA scans and answer clinical questions. Oh yeah, for sure. So Dr. Israel, it was great having you on today's podcast. It's quite an honor for us to speak with a real innovator here at Focus on POCUS. And uh, keep on spreading the truth in the way regarding POCUS and keep making these great instructional videos. I watched a couple. And we'll stand by and await your next historic opus. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was, it was really fun. So the book is um, the POCUS Manifesto. It's, you know, type it into Amazon, check it out. And the coffee place... The, the website, once again, was, what was it, P-E- P-H-E-O, coffee.com, theocoffee.com. All right, and listen, don't forget, for more POCUS-style topics, follow us on Facebook at POCUS Cert Academy and Twitter at POCUS Academy. And Larry, thanks so much, and you're, you're quite a renaissance man. It's great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you.